0: and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is yours, Precluse, aka Stephen Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visiblog and author of a special relationship, Trump Epstein and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visitview.blogspot.com, That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, blogspot, also all one word.com. And procure a copy of that book. I'm out of works at the farm's official store, which is at the farm podcast. That is the farm podcast, all one word dot store. And please consider signing up for the farm's Patreon at the lowest tier. You get two additional full length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive gifts and content. And our all access patrons have access to the farm's monthly Zoom party meeting, my State of the Union addresses, periodic write-ups, dispatches from all the adventures I have, insights into the research that's ongoing over here, and all kinds of other goodies. It's a lot of material, guys, so definitely give that a consideration here. Okay, today's guest is rapidly becoming a regular on the farm. He is an independent UK-based avid podcast listener who goes by Senate. Thank you so much for joining me again this evening, sir. Hi, nice to be here. All right, guys, and also joining us for this outing is another repeater and another heavyweight one at that. He is a Kentucky-based independent writer, researcher, and activist. He is the author of Uncertain Futures and Assessment of the Conditions of the Present and Acceleration, Utopian Currents from Dada to the CCRU. Folks, I give you guys the great Edmund Berger. Ed, thank you so much for joining us again this evening, sir.
1: Hey, guys, excited to be back on the farm with you all
0: absolutely well, all right guys this is a continuation of the farm's storied wackle series but with a twist we are going to look at the evolution of the old wackle network from the end of the cold war up to current day events and trust me folks it has simply been an incredible journey chronicling wackles legacy up to 2023 When Keith and I and the rest of the original Wackle crew began the original podcast series, we saw it as a historical undertaking. But beginning with the show I did with Keith and some others on Abe's assassination this past summer revealed, the old Wackle network is still around, still a player, but with a new generation of leaders and institutions that have carried on the work of the OGs at The forefront of this revival is another subject as relevant now as ever—private military and intelligence companies. One of the contentions we have tried to make throughout this series is that modern-day PMCs and PIFCs have effectively taken up the role, by and large, of wackle and like bodies. Whereas during the Cold War, Wackel served as a middle ground between the Western elites from the conservative establishment and the neoliberal order alike to arrange things with a motley crew, Of international drug and arms traffickers, aging Nazi war criminals, and next generation black terrorists, along with various religious fanatics and cultists of all stripes. It was an incredible milieu, both sides of which largely still existing to this day. That would be the overworld and the underworld functions there. But increasingly, it's the private military companies and the private intelligence companies where these two groups are meeting and doing business and on a number of levels. At the center of it all was the most enigmatic of PMCs. It was an allegedly Russian-controlled PMC called Far West Limited or LTD. But it was so much more than that, as we have seen over the course of this series. Indeed, It may be the driving force behind the present war in Ukraine and how Mr. Joe Biden ended up in the White House. And seriously, I wish I was exaggerating these claims. But up to this point we've seen some pretty compelling evidence we've explored the circumstances that spawned far west the origin stories of people who founded it and its role in the great ruble scandal the moscow apartment bombings 9-11 project hammer its shocking links to the smuggling of nuclear and biological weapons and its role in ukraine's orange revolution and the 2008 russo georgian war and now we are coming to the end of this saga at long last, we are going to take a look at recent events and how the remnants of Far West have continued to influence events into recent times. During the ninth and most recent installment with yours truly flying solo, we took an in-depth look at Ukraine and the Far West-centric events that have led up to the current war and a lot of the intrigues playing out around it, most notably the Burisma scandal and Gate was a major part of the last episode so for this one we're going to step back from ukraine and assess what all was going on globally during this crucial time frame of 2013-2014 at the onset of obama's administration he seems to have genuinely attempted détente with russia But after the events that unfolded during these two years, this was essentially impossible. It could be argued that a kind of global strategy of tension was employed to achieve this success. And the different theaters of it, in addition to the Euromedan stuff going on in Ukraine, are going to be up for consideration in this particular installment. And how, effectively, the uh, world has been sent on the course to a potential world war that we are now struggling with. As with all the Far West series, this show and the whole series is dedicated to Ed Kaufman, alias Don Diligent. Ed was the heart and soul of the original Wackle series series. I hope and pray that I have done him justice with this one. As great a researcher as he was, he was an even better man. So, Ed, all this is for you, and I hope you are pleased. And on that note, let us start the show. <laughs> credible allegations surrounding far west are its purported links to far-right white nationalist terrorist Andres Brevik. Senna can you give us give the kids at home a quick refresher course as to who this cretin is before getting into his potential links to
2: far west Anders Brevik? Uh, Bearing Anders Bering Brevik is a Norwegian far-right extremist who carried out the deadliest attack in Norway since World War II um in July 2011 Brevik detonated a car bomb under the gov uh, in the government quarter of Oslo that killed eight people and injured 200 others, more than 200 others. The explosion caused significant damage to several government buildings, including the office of the prime minister. Um, following the bombing, Brevik, dressed in a police uniform, traveled to Utoya Island, where a workers' youth league, uh, the AWF, uh, camp was being held. Um, so This is the youth wing of the Norwegian Labour Party, basically. Um, And many of the children uh, or sort of teenagers that were there were, um, you know, kids of like the Norwegian establishment, various politicians and that kind of thing. Um, And other officials, like I think the uh, chief of police uh, in Oslo, his kids were also there um, on the island at that day. Um, so it was important that, yeah, that's uh, important to note. Um, on the island, Brevik embarked on a shooting spree that lasted for about an hour. He methodically hunted down and shot uh, attendees of the camp, resulting in 69 deaths, um, most of whom were teenagers. Many tried to hide and swim away, but uh, Brevik pursued them relentlessly and, um, I think another thing to kind of note here, uh, which will kind of show up a lot um in in this, there there are a few touch points to this. Uh apparently what was going on at the camp where they were practicing how to uh you know how to dock a flotilla. So they were kind of practicing um flotillas that were kind of meant to eventually go to Gaza. Um, I think it's important at this time that there was a lot of um, controversy on Norwegian policy towards Israel. So um, major divestments from their sovereign wealth fund were being examined. There were all sorts of um, uh, foreign policy choices uh, around that time um, between between Norway and Israel um, is something that's kind of brought up a lot in this. So um, Breivik was eventually apprehended by the Norwegian police's Delta Force on Utøya Island. Uh, upon his arrest, he immediately confessed. Um, the attacks were meticulously planned. Breivik had a had written a 1,500-page manifesto titled 2083, a European Declaration of Independence, in which he expressed his far-right views his disdain for multiculturalism and his desire to spark a revolution against what he perceived as the Islamization of Europe. Uh, We'll get into this a bit more, but, um, yeah, there are a lot of citations in this manifesto of kind of uh, people who are quite common on the anti-Islam or counter-jihad scene. Um, So two people that come up well, i they're, they're of note for me because i'm british are um douglas murray who will get into a bit more and melanie phillips who are both uh right right wing far far right journalists in uh britain um very connected to neoconservatism zionism those kinds of things um during the trial, Breivik showed no remorse. Um, he stated his attacks were cruel but necessary to save Norway and Europe from Muslims and, quote, cultural Marxists. Uh, so this was 2011, and he's using the term cultural Marxist. So I'm, I'm sure we've all heard it a lot more since then. Um, in August 2012, brevik was found to be sane and sentenced to 21 years in prison which can be extended indefinitely as long as he is deemed a threat to society and i think the norwegians kind of plan to extend it forever uh though they can't say that um okay uh there are some important connections here to note so a lot of this information comes from an article that uh peter dale scott wrote about this event. Um, so, you know, examining it as a possible deep event. Um, here are some important things that come up that I think are, you know, also kind of bring a lot of link, more subtle links to uh, Far West and the the milieu. Um, so it's widely noted that Breivik, um used the same bombing modus operandi as the oklahoma city bombings and the 1993 world trade center bombing which was an ammonium nitrate bomb concealed in a park vehicle um andrew gumbel uh wrote a, an op-ed for the los angeles time um, brevik appears to have been more than simply inspired by american predecessors such as timothy mcveigh the oklahoma city bomber the materials he used the way he planned and carried out his attacks and his own writings all suggest that he was deeply deeply familiar with the actions of some notorious political killers on this side of the atlantic brevik possessed a glock semi-automatic the same weapon McVeigh was carrying when he was arrested Um, by a highway patrol officer, uh, 90 minutes after the uh, Oklahoma bombing. Um, Brevik also possessed a .223 caliber Ruger assault rifle, just like McVeigh. Um, Debate still continues as to whether Brevik himself could have developed the skills to make a successful ammonium nitrate bomb though we'll get into possibly where he may have learned that. Um, but there are strong indications that the 1993 World Trade Center bombers and one of the two known Oklahoma City bombers, so that's uh, Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols, uh, received training abroad, possibly from Al-Qaeda. Um, and this is from, I think it's Senator. So Senator Dana Rohrabacher. Backer, who was um, on the House Intelligence Committee um, in one of his reports, uh, explored the connections between um, Terry Nichols and a man by, by the name of Ramzi Youssef, who was the Al-Qaeda-linked mastermind of the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. Um, Youssef was a close associate of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who was the mastermind of 9-11, well, the Al-Qaeda mastermind of 9-11. According to researcher J.M. Berger and others, in November 1994, Terry Nichols and Ramzi Youssef both walked on the same grounds of the same college campus, Southwestern University in the Philippine city of uh, Cebu, where an Islamist cell was active. Later, each man booked a flight on the same airline. It's worth recalling that in 1993, the bombing of the World Trade Center. The attackers were trained by a member of Al Qaeda, uh, Ali Mohammed, who is also who is almost certainly a double agent, also working for the U.S. Um, the same trainer led uh, quote quote marks to the 9/11 Commission Report the 1998 attack on the U.S. Embassy and may have allegedly trained the 9-11 hijackers as well. Um, So getting back to Bravik, there's a potential higher dimension to Bravik's crimes. So... But that can be evidenced both from the documentation, you know, his own documentation and uh, police reports, so it, he suggests that he's part of a larger network um, of neo-knights, templars defending Judeo-Christian Europe, I think that's important term to take note of as well, Judeo-Christian, is, is, it's a i mean i watch loads of these like news channels po- podcasts from like right-wing guys it is something you see a particular uh, strain of person or con- connected person kind of bring up and um we'll we'll get into that or i'm sure those of you that know a lot will will pick up um on that so there was allegedly a meeting brevik attended He mentions in his manifesto a, quote, Knights Templar meeting in London. The meeting had around five attendees, including a Russian and a Serbian. The Serbian, represented by Brevik at at the meeting, I I think by represented there they mean um, how he describes him, um, was in uh, Monrovia, Liberia, and had evaded punishment for killing Muslims in Bosnia. Brevik's quote here is, I joined the session after visiting one of the initial facilitators, a Serbian crusader commander and war hero in, in Monrovia. Um, the, there's reason to believe that the Serbian commander might be Milorad U- Ulamek, also known as Milorad uh, Lukovic or Legi- Legija." Um, who we kind of mentioned in previous episodes as being part of, um, or you know, Balkan's organized crime networks and having these possible connections to far, far West, uh, particularly filling in the kind of nineties time of, uh, so let's just say chaos in Eastern Southern Europe. And, um, so Ulemek was a former leader of the Serbian para- paramilitary unit, Arkans Tigers, later known as the Red Berets, and they were responsible for uh, many crimes in Bosnia. Um, Broek's manifesto praises the Tigers and their leaders, including uh, Raznatovic Arkan, uh, who we also mentioned in that previous episode, and uh, Ulamek. Um, viewing them as inspirations. Um, Ulamek proves to be a significant figure in Brevik's narrative um, as well. There is another video linked to Brevik that has striking resemblances to Brevik's video. The second video was released by the leader of a Knights Templar group called Order 777. Um, maybe there's something interesting about that number. Um, the leader of Order 777 is a man by the name of Nick Gregor who's also known as Command Commander Madnick or Madnick 77, a former anti-Muslim uh, ter- terrorist from East Germany. Uh, Gregor, a multifaceted individual, um, is an artist author and avid video poster on the internet uh especially under the order 77 banner um both um gregor and Brevik's videos call for a judeo-christian europe to rally against the threats of islam and globalist multiculturalism as propagated by the un and the us uh Yep, and here, here is a description of uh, Gregor's video from the Daily Telegraph. I tried to look for it. I couldn't find it. So um, I just have to rely on the description. Yeah. Um, the group calling itself Order 777 claims to bring together Christian resistance movements and features a depiction of of a Templar knight uh, that will be a red Maltese cross with the slogan or the Order Seven 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 Strikes Back, alongside footage of a variety of armed gangs with the words "Factions United." The groups include the UFF in Northern Ireland, Serbian nationalists, Liberian and Congolese fighters, and members of the neo-fascist um. AWB in South Africa which um I don't know I think also might be uh have some connections to Order of the Nine Angels I I I feel like I've read that somewhere um uh, certainly like I think they were connected to like At- Atom Waffen division and uh some of these like newer movements because this may be a, a decade or two ago we're talking we're talking about here um but yeah um in one clip McGregor is holding a kalashnikov and in another in another says the war of the future will be a war of the religions a number of similarities between the compete compendium, Uh, which is Brevik's manifesto and the Order 77 videos have begun to emerge. Brevik said he attended the founding meeting of the Knights Templar Europe in London uh, um, after visiting uh, his Serbian commander. Um, Now, I found some uh, interesting stuff uh, again about Nick Gregor and he kind kind of connects into a a kind of loop of people that connects us uh, in my in my opinion right back to um far west uh, uh, more of the top political side so um this next little bit i'm about to read came from um a paper written uh you know commissioned by the european commission the institute of race relations it's called exit from white supremacism the accountability gap within europe's de-radicalization programs and it basically talks about how a lot of these um programs like uh designed to um de-radicalize white supremacists uh aren't really doing the job and um governments are being a bit slack but um i thought it was interesting because it gives uh it, it it uh brings us to a lot of connections so um nick gregor as we mentioned was a german neo nazi um he was an associate of a uh man by the name of uh carsten uh this is a really difficult like Slavic-ish name uh shesh um, who was a neo-Nazi paid informant who gave evidence at a Munich trial of uh, Bete Schapp, um and four co-defendants who were part of the National Socialist Underground um, for charges relating to the murders of 10, 10 people, mostly Turks, um, between 2000 and 2010. Uh, Gregor's trajectory is murky, to say the least. In 2005, he he was helped by the federal version of the German Exit Programme, so that is a German de radicalization programme, to write a confessional account of his disengagement from the neo-Nazi scene. His conversion, quote Marx, however, was seemingly short-lived. Gregor went on to become a leading light within the counter-jihad movement in the UK, founding alongside paul ray we'll get to uh in a bit paul ray um order 777 um and this is again from uh, the report but was this really a story of a racist dropping out from the neo-nazi scene only to drop back in as a fully fledged counter jihadi or is something else going on could it be that gregor who now lives comfortably in gambia was placed on the on the german secret services payroll when he dropped out in 2005 and was even working with the british secret services when he founded order 777 of course we have no way of knowing and can only speculate um so that was that there from that report but um the man that was mentioned in there paul ray um is quite interesting because he again loops us back to um a very interesting network of people. So Paul Ray is a British man who is kind of known for allegedly being the founder of the EDL. Um so the EDL itself was is the English Defense League. So um it was kind of a um kind of a, a street protest group who were primarily comprised of football hooligans, but rose to real prominence by these kind of protests, uh like counter jihad protests. Um, what's interesting is they were kind of arrived, the rival of a group called um al Uh Both these groups originated in a town called Luton, London, um, I think man, I wonder if we actually even spoke about this in another episode. I hope I hope not. um and they were kind of, um, yeah, it's important because because um I I remember this, you know, a lot from the news and just seeing it, but they they were kind of uh counter to each other. so Al turoon was a kind of um sort of jihadist group that had a lot of uh al Qaeda connection you know, international jihad connections. Um, run by a man by the name of Anjem, Chowd- Anjem Chowdhury, um, who was kind of a like political figure for Islamism in Britain. Um, so it's kind of interesting that they kind of spawn up right next to each other. Now, what's interesting about Paul Ray is, um, Pamela Geller, who is a kind of, um, counter she had um far Atlas right, Stroke, yeah.
0: She's really close to John Bolton, um, and a lot of like the big neocons uh, going back at least to the Bush two administration. But yeah, she was a big uh blogger during the Noughts. Um, so that's really interesting. Pamela Geller would be tied in with all these people.
2: Well, um, I mean, she goes really fast. So, her speaking about um Paul Ray. Um, and uh, you'll know earlier the kind of uh, Israel connections I kind of pointed out earlier of what was going on. Pamela Geller um, is like primarily a Zionist um, politically, so um, she kind of wrote in some of her blogs. Um, Paul the brave, Paul the brave, quote Lionheart was a was the Brit Christian evangelical sleuth. On the International Solidarity Movement bust in Israel, um which she wrote in her uh, blog. So I'll carry on. um This this was published in Front Page Mag, September two thousand and six, and it's about Paul Ray, one of our volunteers in the United Kingdom for Stop the in- International Solidarity Movement. The International Solidarity Movement is a um, solidarity movement for uh pa- palestine so it's pro it's a pro-palestinian uh group they were really um involved in direct action so i'm not sure maybe i i think possibly uh rachel cory who was killed um might have been like working um for the ism but they they've been you know on the ground they're doing a lot of stuff so one of our volunteers in the united kingdom uh, for stop the ISM managed to infiltrate the ISM late last June in the Holy Land, where the where the ISM operatives in di- uh, operates in direct support of terrorists. One volunteer who prefers to remain anonymous to avoid retaliatory attacks has prior experience going undercover for the police in in the UK. Um, The photos and intelligence he brought back are proving invaluable to intelligence agencies watching the ISM and have been in official hands for over a month prior to the to his publication. So that was kind of what Pamela Geller had to say about Paul Ray. Now, Paul Ray is connected to the EDL, as we've established, uh, who was also close to the EDL was you know Tommy Robinson who uh was kind of known as the public figure now <laughs> traversing this web of connections uh we just mentioned there uh, the article about the kind of deradicalization programs Tommy Robinson had quite a famous um de-ra- deradicalization where he publicly you know left the EDL carried out by an organization called the quilliam foundation which was one of these sort of uh think tanks um on you know islam and all of those kinds of things it was set up by um mu- by a muslim by uh by muslims um one in particular was a guy called uh majid nawaz right who is now a radio presenter on t uh on uh, lbc radio now majid nawaz his background is he is also a kind of former radical he was um supposedly i think a member of um, his but to here which was a kind of um radical group uh, I, I i think there have been various connections to them in violence but i think what's interesting is Majid's description of of the group and the kind of public description of the group is um, that they, yeah, they want to achieve a caliphate and world uh, jihad, but um, they go about it through, you know, political means, not necessarily electoralism, but convincing uh, and not necessarily direct violence, which I always thought was interesting because they it's kind of like a like a like a muslim version of the maybe what the ned and those kinds of things do uh now in a lot of the left.ru stuff his but to here is kind of uh mentioned of having um basically a presence in having had a presence in russia especially the oral mountains and the kind of um caucasus region that we know is really important for this it's, it's all coming to me now. Fiona Hill as well. Um and um new Brzezinski uh and Fritz Ermhoff have all been involved in studying or researching uh his but to here um on behalf of the you know CIA or their respective intelligence agencies and going back to Quilliam um these guys Majid Nawaz Tommy Robinson were all in the milieu of um, a figure many of you might have actually heard of. Uh, so Douglas Murray, who's a kind of popular conservative, but in particular neoconservative uh, commentator, who f- almost for his entire career has worked for many of these kind of right wing uh, think tanks and those kinds of and those kinds of things, and been a publicly right wing. Um, commentator he is part of the henry jackson society and i would say has been the most public figure or at least in britain the most public figure of the henry jackson society um throughout i don't know the last the last decade or maybe even a little bit more than that um and the all of these guys are also in a in the milieu of what, what was called the the idw so the uh intellectual dark web with kind of uh sam harris and also just in general the uh counter jihad movement so robert spencer uh jihad watch and uh those kinds of things who we know have those further you know are immediately connect us back to some of the key players right at the top of far west so um yeah i think uh, that that was a, a long aside there but um yeah it was really interesting that there there's again this it, it, between kind of r- right wing uh r- right wing white supremacists and jihadists there's like they always happen to be in the same place there's a kind of milieu there's um and this is one something I wanted to mention when you brought up Fiona Hill, um, a very public nature to all of this. Like um, a lot of these guys like being in the press. Fiona Hill is in the press doing podcasts, uh, talking about Putin every day. Um, you, you'll find her on something. Uh, so th- that was, um, yeah, just a lot. Um, did did any of you uh, guys have anything uh, in connection to that?
1: That, that information about um, the parallels with McVeigh, like that's incredible stuff. And that didn't know about that, but definitely resonates with some of the stuff that me and Stephen have talked about in the, the Patriot Games episode that we did recently.
2: So let's go back to Gregor's video. He highlights uh, a lot of men in these videos, um, but uh what he doesn't kind of mention is that many of them are drug traffickers so in gregor's video um he you know pays tribute to charles taylor who is the self-installed president of liberia uh samir J- jajia uh who was a militia leader in lebanon uh johnny adair who was a former Protestant militia leader in Northern Ireland. I think, uh, remember that, because I've got an interesting tidbit. Uh, Also, that Nick Greger was hiding out in Gambia, um, because there's a funny article I've got at the end of this that ties us all together. Um, Gary Smith, Irish militia hitman. Billy Wright, (laughs) alleged Irish militia hitman. Milorad Ulamic, uh, who we've mentioned before, who's portrayed as the most significant figure celebrated by Brevik and Gregor. Ulamek, as we mentioned, was kind of more than just a militia leader. He was a mafioso and a member of the Zemun clan, who I think we spoke about in a, another, in the same episode I've been mentioning. So they were involved in many drug smuggling extortion other rings um and were implicated in numerous killings illicit pa- paramilitary groups often resort to the arms for drugs trade to finance their operations uh for Bravik's heroes who were Raznatovic arkan and ulamek uh, legisha d- drugs might have been more than just a means to an end um other significant figures in in this underworld included a man by the name of uh, Stanko Kane Sobotic who amassed wealth through cigarette smuggling and resides in Switzerland um, Arkans' assassination in 2000 was a turning point he had been extorting from other criminal groups believing himself invincible um, his death allowed the Zamun clan to eliminate competition and establish a rigid monopoly in the underworld. Russian sources have connected Ulamek with Vladimir Filin, the leader of Far West LLC. The group um Ulamek's relationship was with Filin was reportedly so close that far west, far west. Felt threatened by Ulamek's um, imprisonment. Serbian and Russian organized crime have been deeply involved in drug trafficking, but also protection rackets at Black Sea ports, In as we have mentioned before. Now, going back to Brevik, there's one connection we've established here between kind of Brevik and Ulamek, who was Serbian, and we know that villain was connected to the serbian criminal uh, organizations but brevik also made multiple trips to belarus um, during one of his visits in 2005 he claimed to be visiting viking graves however he took an interest in belarus's governance political structure and the aftermath of the chernobyl nuclear disaster um the Belarusian KGB kept detailed records on Brevik. Um, Now, Brevik is believed, whilst he was there, to have undergone military training in Belarus um, under the guidance of a Valery Lunev, who is a former colonel of Belarusian Special Forces. Um, Now, Lunev, uh, as you remember, is a member of far west he is a partner of Fillin. he was supposedly um far west man in belarusian intelligence um a man by the name of mikhail reshetnikov the head of the party of belarus patriots claims that Brevik visited Belarus three times. On one occasion, Brevik travelled to Minsk using a passport from another European country. Around this time, Brevik reportedly acquired a Belarusian girlfriend and had access to a significant amount of money. Another connection that ties Brevik to Russia and Far West is that in one of these trips he supposedly met with a man from the from the Russian Slavic Union um now this was a man called who has the nickname Red Tarzan um he was though his full name is uh Vyacheslav Datsik so Russian officials had been kind of looking at Dasik. Um now Dasik had previously sought asylum in Norway after escaping from a psychiatric facility in Russia but he was denied Brevik um was alleged to have had strong affiliations with uh, Dasik's organization um which is the Slavic Union this group was found in possession of weapons during a police raid in Oslo uh there's also evidence to suggest that Brevik um, procured a significant portion of his equipment from from Russia um when he went to Norway he claimed to well publicly that he'd been dispatched to Norway by Russian agents on a mission to assassinate. The Chechen leader Ahmed Sakaev. Um, Russian officials sought his extradition back. However, there were concerns about torture. Um Breivik's, um investigators into Brevik were probing his financial activities, um, where he had a substantial amount of funds that he earned through investments. There's speculation that these funds were located in Bermuda. Um, I think what's also important to note about this time is that there was a major CIA presence in Oslo. Uh, Wiki, WikiLeaks revealed that U.S. intelligence services, primarily the CIA, had a significant presence in Oslo over the past decade. Their primary objective was to conduct intelligence, uh, conduct surveillance and counter-terrorism activities targeting Norwegians or those visiting or migrating there. Norwegian officials um, claimed not to be aware of the major presence um, by the CIA. The UK Telegraph highlighted that around this time the UK uh, the US was he- also heavily criticizing Norway's lax responses to potential terrorist threats um and that was kind of there though i just wanted to get into like i found a kind of funny article um that's more of a side but it, it was interesting reading it after having the, done through this um the touch points so we mentioned that uh Nick Gregor had kind of fled to Gambia and had set up there, and that he'd been in also in touch with Northern Ireland um kind of UDA um guys. And I kind of found an article recently that um so very recent within the last year that describes a man, Alan McCrory, a former Irish guardsman from Ballymena uh who has basically gone to Ukraine to fight, um, though it's come out that allegedly he was an enforcer for the UDA who collected drug deaths. Um, and here is a kind of just short, I'm not going to read the whole article, but here are just some uh, short quotes from him uh, being questioned on his far-right connections. Yes, I also admit I was once involved with the far-right order seven group but it was only for a short time and i quit when i saw the direction it was taking surely i deserve credit for that um i said ser- uh, he was part of the british army as well i served seven years in belize iraq and kenya and then i got medically discharged in 2011. some people claim i was a mercenary uh but that's not true either Um, I served in Ukraine for a year from 2016 to 2017 and I worked for a security firm in the Gambia where I was training police, foreign embassies. Uh, And that line was the line that really jumped out because, yeah, as we mentioned earlier, Nick Greger was in Gambia. This is a drug enforcer from Northern Ireland who now finds himself fighting in Ukraine um so yeah it was just uh quite funny reading this article and i i thought i would bring that up but um that's where we are on brevik
0: that reminded me of one uh other like little nugget i want to throw in here for you guys which i'm guessing a lot of people find interesting uh with brevik here so it's interesting that he has these serbian ties and we have already mentioned before that uh vladimir fillon of course was reputed to have uh, links to the crime network around the serbian terrorist arden um after his uh, assassination so what's interesting about this um were allegations that peter Lavenda, or i believe more uh, precisely simon quote unquote uh, i think in dead names made about a rather uh, notorious church in new york known as the american orthodox catholic church So this was a major center of um, wondering bishops and uh, reputedly a lot of interesting intelligence ties to, which I'll mention here in a second. Uh, One of these bishops uh, was a guy who had the pretentious name of uh, His Excellency Count Michael Paul Pierre de Valich, I believe, who was a bishop in this church and he also reportedly uh was involved with nationalist Serbian organizations during the 90s specifically groups related to Arden terrorists that we just mentioned so this would be the same kind of criminal network that later became linked to far west limited in the late 90s so there's a couple of things about this that are um especially interesting so on the one hand um the american orthodox catholic church has also had long-standing links this is very rarely talked about but it's had long-standing links to the various sovereign orders of saint john uh, which ed and i just talked quite a bit about in the most recent patriot games episode that we did on the patreon together and also um even though these guys haven't had a chance to hear it yet it'll be out by the time this airs uh the recent episode of did michael and uh casey Gain on um timothy Boward of sound of freedom infamy and the uh, knightly order that he is also a part of basically it's this whole network of these pseudo chivalric orders that have drawn many intelligence uh, cronies over the years many of them go by the uh, order of saint john or some variation the knights of malta though there are a couple of knights templars ones as well which is um Interesting, in light of Breivik's own uh, reputed connections to a Templar organization, uh, Timothy Ballard is also connected to a Templar organization, though they were certainly different, but that's either here nor there. But anyway, as for the American Orthodox Catholic Church, it was linked to the OG Order of St. John, the Shikshinny Knights of Malta, all the way back in the 1960s via the figure of Christopher Maria Stanley, Who is of historical importance because he later turned up into investigations into the kennedy assassination uh, because he was actually the man who made david ferry a uh, consecrated bishop as well so a little interesting side note with that but the connections to the orders of saint john and the american orthodox catholic church continued into the modern era via this fellow here this uh, uh, excellency count michael paupier de valich He was at least a member of another one of these groups, the Sovereign Order of St. John of Jerusalem, Knights of Malta Federation of the Autonomous Priories. I've been looking at this group for years, and it does seem to have had some loose connections as well to the good old Shikshini network uh, that Ed and I kind of detailed recently, which I also got into in the Sound of Freedom episode. So another appearance of this network here, and again with links to... Ardent and Serbia no West in the old Far West you uh, later on but if that's not interesting enough and uh, this is kind of a nice little fitting tribute here for Ed Kaufman alias non-diligent uh, the star of the original Wackle series Ed fanatically poured through um the Ukrainian weekly which was essentially the house organ of the OUNB for many years, the Banderites, talking so much about throughout all of this. Throughout research for the original Wackle series, and he made a lot of interesting discoveries in Ukrainian weekly, to put it mildly. But one of them involved um, a bishop known as Walter Profeta. Who was for many years the head of the American Orthodox Catholic Church? Who Peter Lavendia talks quite a bit about in the First sinister Forces book, especially his reputed ties to the intelligence community. But what he doesn't mention, which Ed was able to figure out by piecing together several articles of the Ukrainian Weekly, was that Profeta was a was involved at least with the World Anti-Communist League. And most likely was also involved with the OUNB since he's turning up in Ukrainian Weekly and had ties potentially to WACL. So, this means that this particular church, on top of everything else, the American Orthodox Catholic Church also probably had long standing links to the OUNB. Walter Profeta, of course, was himself Ukrainian and he had come over from the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. So it's quite likely, uh, as he was involved in Ukrainian nationalist circles for years, that uh, the American Orthodox Catholic Church was quite well connected in these circles. So again, you have Deval- Devalich later on having links with this Serbian group tied to the terrorist Arden, which later ended up connected to Filin and Far West. Who again were potentially being cultivated by the Banderites during this whole era via this uh, Kupchinsky guy, Roman Kupchinsky, Chupch- who I had just mentioned at the onset of this. So, just to kind of bring things a little bit full circle there, but I, I didn't mean to digress here too much since uh, you were doing such a fabulous job here, Senate, bringing up some great connections here. is the boston marathon we might be on even firmer footing as far as it goes to the far west connections so Senna, can you recap this incident for us? give us a rundown of the players and then get into the potential links that head to far west
2: april 2013 is when these uh, bombings took place but this is kind of a year i think before isis really kind of show up and make their public move um i think we're about two we're two years post gaddafi being removed and we're kind of the syrian war has kind of settled in a bit but not necessarily reached uh its peak so that just just because uh you got to get in the frame of mind of like what was in the news back then because these are really like public events and stuff so um Let's go in. Um, the Boston Marathon bombing um, happened in April 2013. Two pressure cooker bombs filled with black powder and metallic shrapnel that detonated near the finish line. Um, it was a pretty gruesome explosion. Uh, so it revolt uh, resulted in three deaths, uh, 260 injured. Um, many of these were amputations. It led to a manhunt Uh, There was effectively a uh, a city-wide lockdown, which was a major event in itself uh, in Boston. Um, The FBI, with the help of law enforcement, launched an extensive investigation to identify and apprehend the perpetrators. Surveillance footage played a crucial role in identifying two Chechen brothers, Tamerlane and... Zokar uh Sarnev as the primary suspects. Um the nation what wa- uh, the nation watched as a manhunt unfolded unfolded, culminating in a standoff in Watertown, Massachusetts. Uh during the pursuit, an MIT police officer, Sean Collier, was also killed um by the suspects. Um Tamerlane, the older brother, was killed in the, in a confrontation with police, whilst the younger brother, uh, Zokar, was found hiding in a boat in Watertown. Um, uh, Zokar was subsequently arrested, found guilty, and sentenced to death. Um, now, there are just crazy connections with the bombers and it actually like w- when you read this and go sense it, it kind of makes a lot of sense as to why um i think we don't hear about the boston bombing like too much it's not it's not brought up um a lot when we think about terror it's it, it, i don't think it's publicly referred to that much even though as i've described it was quite a um, gruesome incident now the Boston bombers had two uncles. So uh, these went by the name of uh, Rossan Sani and Alvi Sanev, and they both had significant ties to the CIA and Halliburton. These connections um, were particularly important in relating to Caspian sea oil routes, um, particularly in Dag- Dagestan and Chechnya. Um Now, the bombers themselves came from Chechnya. They also had uh, connections to Kyrgyzstan, so they're listed as uh, Kyrgyzstani Chechens. Um, So I think they were in Kyrgyzstan as a result of Stalinist uh, deportations. And after the end of... um, yeah. during uh de-sovietization de- i guess uh they kind of returned to chechnya and then eventually moved to the united states i think um so rosslan sarni's connection to the cia is traced through his former father-in-law uh graham fuller so um rosslan was married to uh graham's daughter um who's called Samantha, um, Samantha Fuller. Um, Graham Fuller previously held the position of vice chairman at the CIA's National Intelligence Council. Fuller is also recognized as a geopolitical scholar, uh, akin akin to Brzezinski and Samuel Huntington. Um, both Brzezinski and Huntington have shown support for Fuller's work. Um, additionally, Henry, Henry Kissinger, appears to have mentored Fuller um, during their time at Harvard uh, in the late 1950s. Um, Their association at Harvard spanned um, their time at the Department of Government and the CIA-affiliated Weatherhead Center for International Affairs. A significant aspect of Fuller's work revolves the management of the Islamic world. So, Greg. I mean, here's some more info on Graham's perspective on Islam. So, um in 1999, for uh, Le Monde, he highlighted that Western perceptions of Islamic fundamentalism often revolve around stereotypical images. He emphasized that while some Islamist movements have reactionary and violent elements, there are modernizing forces within them. Fuller believes that political Islam represents change and could be the primary force for modernization in the Muslim world. He asserts that Islam has its roots in mercantilism and private enterprise and does not glorify state intervention in the economy. Uh, Fuller's interpretation of Islamist criticism of capitalism is that they are actually critiquing excessive consumerism and materialism. Fuller's work has been kind of paraphrased and used quite a lot. Um, So journalist uh, Richard Labervere used a lot of his... um, a lot of his kind of quotes in his book uh 2000 book dollars for Terror so 2000 before 2001 um lab where Laaver made claims um that about bin Laden's interactions with Saudis and CIA officials before 9 11 uh an unnamed analyst um as quoted by labeaver, um, discussed the strategy of guiding Islam's evolution to counter adversaries, a policy that had success in Afghanistan against the Russians. Whilst this quote is sometimes attributed to Fuller, uh, Labavere's book suggests otherwise. Um, so, another thing to note here is that Fuller, both Fuller and Brzezinski, are known to oppose the Israel lobby and uh, they kind of shared in this with um, figures like Chaz Freeman, John Mersheimer, and Stephen Walt. Um, Fuller also participated in a 2004 documentary, um, Uncovered the Whole Truth About the Iraq War, which um, showcases his anti-neocon views. The documentary was funded by foundations like the Ford Foundation, um, Soros, uh, and featured numerous CIA operatives. Some of the operatives in the documentary have been linked to conspiracy theories related to 9-11 and CIA drug trafficking. Um, Fuller's involvement in the documentary suggests that he could possibly be deeply connected and chosen to expose information now we know fuller as well is also heavily connected to turkey and particular the gulen movement so fuller and a man by the name of morton abramovitz have reportedly influential in turkey they helped gulen uh, when he from turkey um, into the U.S. in 1998, despite the Gulen movement being defined as radical, Fuller and Abramovitz, with the support of the CIA's George uh, Fidas, defended it as non-radical. So the Gulen movement, as we've I think mentioned a few times, maybe in the in this series, um, is kind of a network of schools and followers. That uh kind of practices like a a version of Islam with maybe a few things added in. so it's yeah, uh, it actually particularly grew out of a uh,
0: a Sufi order. um I, gosh, I cannot remember the name of it now off the top of my head, but yeah, and um Gulen has actually been kind of an uh, an ongoing ragable to Egergen and uh, Turkey as well. Another important point. He's uh, kind of periodically you and the movement in general is kind of um periodically used to threaten the uh, current administration there.
2: Yeah, Graham Fuller has been uh, heavily connected with them, uh, particularly basically in getting uh, Gulen to to the United States. Uh, just some other things on Fuller's record. So um, uh, he allegedly retired, but even then he's still um, getting involved in stuff. So, He's faced allegations of participating in several illicit CIA operations, um, in particular Iran-Contra, which Fuller um, reportedly helped initiate with a 1984 memo to Director William Casey. Um, The memo detailed a meeting in Hamburg involving CIA officer Ted Shackley Uh, Iranian arms dealer Manuka Gourbanifar and um, Adnan Khashoggi. um, uh, It's purported that Fuller's involvement in the Iran-Contra scandal may have um, led to his official retirement in 1988. Despite his retirement, he remained active in Middle East policy being recognized as a key researcher for Rand Center for Middle East Public Policy during the 90s. Um, uh, Yeah, the uh, Center for Middle East Public Policy was established by Carlisle Chairman Frank Carlucci, uh, Associate of Ted Shackley and uh, George H. W. Bush. Um, Other notable members of the... Middle East Public Policy Board um, included Iranian um, Hushang Ansari a close associate of Kissinger uh, and David Rockefeller and Lester Crown, owner of General Dynamics Um, the other allegations um, surrounding Fuller uh, Rodney Stitch, an investigative author um, cited a source claiming Fuller and CIA Director Robert Gates managed assassination teams these teams allegedly targeted witnesses and operatives linked to illicit CIA operations um, primarily the October October surprise um, the close associations with all of the men uh, we've just mentioned Um have led to accusations ranging from, yeah, drug trafficking, assassinations. Stitches' source also implicated um, Fuller in a thwarted 1992 plot to assassin to assassinate then presidential candidate Bill Clinton, who was running against George H. W. Uh, w. Bush. I wanted to look more into that one because, uh, yeah, I'd never heard of that <laughs> that that plot before a um, FBI whistleblower Sybil Edmonds. So Edmonds gained attention for her claims that the FBI overlooked warnings um, about bin Laden's plan for a significant attack on US soil. Um, She worked as an interpreter, um, translating and covertly, covertly recorded conversations of Turkish diplomatic and political figures. Um, I think she also was involved in interrogations, um, possibly some interrogations of Turks and potentially Uyghurs. I I remember reading a lot more about what Sybil Edmunds said. Um, that's where I think a lot of the originations of the, uh, or, or at least some weight to the kind of theories that the, um, that the kind of jihadist networks were being run by um, intelligence, I, I, I think really, really came out. Um, so just some some more about, you know, exactly what she said. Um, so she provided some uh, insights into the Gulen organization. Uh, she said that they had established 300 uh, madrasas in Central Asia, presenting them as institutions of, quote, moderate Islam, Uh, again that's probably a phrase to pick up because maybe she picked it up from somewhere, but uh, just like uh, Judeo-Christian there's a particular type of person that brought the term moderate Islam into the, you know, kind of into the mainstream Uh, and I think it's A lot of the people we mentioned earlier, so like Douglas Murray, um, the kind of anti-jihad people, or maybe the more liberal wings of those. Uh, So, again, that's quite, I mean, it's quite interesting seeing the terminology so far back. Um, Yeah, Edmonds uh, alleged these schools were actually involved in training militia-like islamic fighters sourced from pakistan and afghanistan these fighters after training were would be moved to turkey and then dispersed throughout europe and other regions um Edmonds drew parallels between these operations and cold war tactics well particularly gladio uh here i mean the first time i ever learned about all of this it was termed as uh gladio c or gladio b or something um. yeah uh, and she suggested that radical Islam was being used to further geo- geopolitical and business interests now um, if Edmund's information holds true which I think it looks like it does, it suggests that Fuller, um, his daughter Samantha, who was married to Ruslan Sani um Halliburton and all interests that have been represented by Brzezinski are intertwined in managing these Islamist networks. Um, Brzezinski, being an expert in this domain, would likely be consulted for these operations. Fuller also had a role as station chief in Kabul um, from 1975 to 1978, um, where he pushed the strategic plan to Afghan war. And I'll note here, Brzezinski, when questioned about the consequences of the Afghan war, showed little, well, no remorse, emphasizing the geopolitical benefits over the humanitarian costs. He argued that the collapse of the Soviet Empire and the end of the Cold War were more significant than the rise of groups like the Taliban, which are uh, I guess uh is an important quote to have uh in this segment, especially given we're you know showing these connections that these bombers may you know may have had uh to the top. So given Fuller's extensive connections and the allegations about him, it's uh entirely plausible he had interactions with far west. Much of Sani's family um resided in Kyrgyzstan, where the future bomber where the future Boston bombers um spent their early years, as I mentioned before. Um Sani and Samantha Fuller, um Graeme Fuller's daughter, lived in Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan for a year. Um allegedly they were neighbors and reportedly close with a Chechen Kyrgyz Mafia boss um, Aziz uh, Batukayev. the they were also alleged uh, as well as the entire Sarnev family to have had connections to the Kyrgyz Intelligence Services Um, I think we also mentioned in a previous episode perhaps the episode where we were introducing the far west characters so that might be episode one and two we mentioned that um Saidov and his family um also spent time in kyrgyzstan um and uzbekistan they were also connected to various kyrgyz and um mafia and intelligence figures um too um so, from 1999, Ruslan Sani, so one of the uncles, worked for Halliburton as a contractor, primarily in oil and mineral exploration around the Caspian Sea. So, that's uncle number one, Ruslan Sani, who is married to the daughter of a CIA agent whose specialty is the management uh the geopolitical management of uh, islam um so that's uncle number 1 um uncle number 2 uh alvi sanev um he resided in silver spring uh maryland um he was also A member of and associated with the united states chechen republic alliance uh which was registered to his home address um it was the us cra russian u.s chechen alliance was managed by uh lyoma uzmanov who was the official chechen ambassador to the u.s under president ash Aslan Mashkadov from 1997 to 2005. Um, Brzezinski facilitated uh, Usmanov's move to the US. While in the US, Usmanov was associated with the Woodrow Wilson Center for Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, so the Wilson Center, uh, which also had ties to Brzezinski and Kissinger. Uh, Brzezinski has been deeply involved in Central Asian, and well, this is what he's well known for, but um, in Central Asian and Caucasus uh, politics, Um, Brzezinski's involvement extended contracts to men like Koz Ahmed Nukayev, who was a Chechen mafia leader, who I believe we kind of discussed again in the... Uh, Chechnya episode. Um, The names of the Boston Bombers, uh, Zokar and Tamerlane, suggest a deep-rooted commitment to radical Chechen nationalism within their family. So uh, Tamerlane was the leader of the Timurids um, who controlled a lot. I think they were trying to Tamerlane was trying to revive the Mongol Empire. Um, so, prior to the Boston bombing, intelligence agencies, um, including the FSB, FBI, and CIA, had Tamerlane and his mother on watch lists for suspected jihadist activities. Now, just going back to who we mentioned earlier, uh, course, Ahmed Nukaev uh, and Brzezinski um, Nukayev is a very well connected man. Um, he was the leader of the Chechen mafia during the time of uh, uh, Z- Zokar, uh, Dudaev. Um, oh, so that must be who the other uh, kid is uh, who the other uh, bomber was met uh, was uh, named after uh, Dudaev. Okay. Um, in In the 1990s, uh, Nukayev and Dudayev were responsible for the criminalization and destruction of the Chechen economy, so the kind of uh, oligarchy uh, that we've heard about from Russia, you know, the economic collapse. Um, Nukayev's Western contacts were extensive and included figures such as uh, Brzezinski, James Baker, Enders Wimper. Wimbush and Adnan Khashoggi uh, in the UK. His contacts uh, included Sir James Goldsmith, who was an insider to SAS and MI6 operations, and Margaret Thatcher. Um, Nukayev also had potential ties to Boris Berezovsky, um, Far West side of, um, and the Chechen crime boss uh, we mentioned earlier, Aziz Nukayev, who was close to the um, Sanev family. Now, we mentioned kind of Nukhaev's, uh connections. I think, uh, oh, this is what I remembered. In a previous episode, we also mentioned as well that uh, Nukayev was, um, you know, also a uh, member of the Sufi order. Um, he was uh, also seen as like a kind of leadership figure from that perspective as well so he's kind of um an important figure in his uh in his own right um now this um next section comes from an article by punch magazine um and it was published in 1999 um and i thought it was really interesting because it just um it shows again just the the high level connections between many of the figures in Chechnya with uh, what what we've termed uh, Anglo elites. So um, I'll I'll just go ahead and read through that because I I thought this was worth bringing out in full just to just so you can see the the level that um, a lot of this goes to and uh, how you know concise it is. Um, uh, so Punch Magazine investigation. An investigation by Punch magazine in 1999 revealed a British connection to the Chechen Mafia, particularly highlighting the involvement of key British figures with Chechen leaders. Uh, so uh, in March 1998, uh, Aslan Mashkadov, president of the self-proclaimed Chechen Republic of Ichkeria, landed in Britain. He was greeted by former Tory Lord Treasurer Lord McAlpine, uh, who's also uh and Tory MP for Aldershot, Gerald uh Horwath. Um McAlpine, uh, who by then was leading James Goldsmith's referendum party movement, uh, played host to Mashkudov, um, while uh Hoav facilitated his Westminster contacts. Um, When he was there, Mashkadov dined with uh, Margaret Thatcher uh, at the Ritz, so um, pretty pretty fancy. An international commission to determine Chechnya's legal status. Uh, Additionally, Mashkadov also interacted with Imran Khan, uh, Goldsmith's son-in-law and met with british muslim leaders um i i thought it was interesting that uh imran khan was mentioned in this because obviously well right now as of this recording in august 2023 he's uh in prison and part of um what looks to be uh, a lot of political trouble there and kind of more like coup stuff and uh games but um, I find it quite interesting. Yeah, a lot
0: specifically, of... he was uh, he was believed to have been maybe a little too soft on Russia and the uh, Ukrainian conflict, and uh, the United States opted for a little bit of the old regime change, uh, so it would seem.
2: But yeah, um, I, I find it quite interesting that right now, there's, um, it, uh, I mean, in the media, I mean, it's, it's printed, but it's uh, nowhere near what you think when they really want to focus on something, which means they probably don't want you to know about it a lot. But um, who who I see coming out to support him are, um, I guess we could loosely describe them as Trump-aligned, Trump and conservative-aligned. And it's interesting here that who he's kind of with you know uh goldsmith is kind of the referendum party movement uh which is kind of the euroskeptic movement which morphed into ukip brexit um is connected with what we might call the the classic british far right
0: yeah i think sir jimmy's uh son-in-law actually uh, was one of the major uh financial backers of brexit if i recall correctly so yeah i mean Going up to all of that, I mean, this network was still playing a big role in all that. That's you know very valid points, and
2: they're root, they're rooting for Khan uh, right now. Uh, they so they seem to be the only people uh, coming out um, pub- and publicly uh, doing it. Um, so one of the key figures uh, accompanying Mashkodov is uh, who we've mentioned earlier, Koz Ahmed Nukayev. Um, who was a former first deputy prime minister of Chechnya. Um, Nikayev had significant international connections and a growing private business empire, Uh, was perceived by the Russians as a gangster. The Moscow's anti-organized crime directorate linked him to uh, protection rackets run by the Chechen mafia. Uh, The profits from these rackets were believed to have funded the Chechen war effort. Now, Nukayev, uh, during this meeting, envisioned attracting Western investment to the oil-rich region of Chechnya. He proposed a caucus common market, which would involve partnerships between communities in the region and external investors. To advise on this uh, initiative, An international group of experts was assembled, including American lawyer Samuel um, uh, Pissar, um, a trustee of Goldsmith's estate. Uh, Nukayev was later introduced to um, McAlpine. So that was uh, Lord McAlpine um, at a social event in Paris in September 1997. Accompanied by investment banker Robert Pike, who was married to one of Goldsmith's daughters, Uh, they visited Chechnya to assess the long-term potential of the region and to understand the necessary framework for investors. The Chechen government covered their travel and expenses. A subsequent visit, which included... Um, which included Robertson and Imran Khan, um led to the signing of a letter of intent. um this letter proposed the establishment of a trans caucus energy company supported by an international consortium of companies and investment banks. So we've mentioned this these meetings kind of um to Chechnya by various British elites. Um, One of them with Lord Robertson and Imran Khan. Now, Lord Robertson himself was a British politician of the Labour Party. um, And he also served as the 10th Secretary General of NATO from 1999 to 2003. He was the Secretary of Defence from 1997 to 1999. Um, I think as well, he is also named as a member of the Pilgrim Society. Um when I was looking when I was kind of looking things up. I think he was also connected to um Halliburton and some of the other British PMCs, though I can't remember. Though I remember him kind of being listed in the initial <laughs> outline of far west but i think secretary general of nato uh even for a short stint is um high enough um he's also a patron to the british american project which we kind of know is another one of these uh spook infested um think tanks so um yeah that that's uh quite a senior person right going over there um and signing that letter of intent in 1997. Earlier, we mentioned that Alvi in Maryland and the um, U.S. Chechnya Republican Alliance was based there. Now, this area is known to house several CIA oft- operatives, but notably John Walker Lind, the American captured as an Al-Qaeda operative during the 2001 investigation Um uh, invasion of Afghanistan, grew up in the same vicinity. A neighbor interviewed about the Lind family lived in this. Um, you know, at the time, lived in the same house where Alvi uh, Sarnev and the U.S. Czechia Republican Alliance were registered. So um, that was quite crazy. So, uh, but then again, we're we're seeing here a connection between Chechens, uh, Al-Qaeda, the CIA, uh, all coming together. So we've gone over the two uncles and their kind of various connections. So um, Ruslan's connection to Graham Fuller, who is a CIA agent connected to the Gulen movement, and um, the other uncle, Alvi's connection to... Brzezinski um, and the these kind of um you know groups uh gr- exile groups, right? Um as well as his connection to Chechenian uh, Chechen kind of elites and their connection to Anglo elites. Um however um the younger bomber, so the one that was caught. Um, He also has another really interesting connection, direct connection. Um, So he is connected to someone by the name of Brian Glynn Williams, who is a professor of Islamic history at the University of Massachusetts, uh, Dartmouth. Um, Now, um, Zokar was a student there. I think he was listed as actually what he was actually studying was marine biology. Um, However, um, earlier, I think in high school, uh, so May 2011, um, Zokar reached out to William seeking information on Chechnya. This was prompted by an assignment from his teacher asking students to write about their countries of origin. Uh, Williams' expertise meant he was the go-to person for such information as he at the time he was the only professor in the US uh, teaching courses on Chechen history um, uh, Steve Urban um, of the uh, paper South Coast today was the first journalist to interview Williams about his interaction with uh um, so Um, now here, here's the quote from him. Um, he wanted to learn more about Chechnya, who the fighters were, who the commanders were. I sort of gave him a background. I hope I didn't contribute to the book to, to the bombing, as that kid and his brother identified with the Chechen struggle. Um, there were, um, there was also a more in-depth interview with um, Williams that was conducted by um, PRI, PRI The World, a radio magazine co-produced by WGBH Boston, Public Radio International and BBC World Service. Most notably, this program receives funding from prominent foundations including the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and Rockefeller Foundation um so yeah they they were the ones that wanted to get out that uh i guess uh williams was connected to socar and that he um had a sympathetic view of the chechen struggle um In this interview, Williams emphasised the distinctions between Chechens and al-Qaeda. He stated, one of the biggest sort of lies of the war on terror is that the Chechens are somehow a subplot to al-Qaeda's war with America, and this is an effort on, on the part of the Russians. William also mentioned his travels to Afghanistan in 2003, where he interviewed Taliban prisoners of war, but found no Chechens. He highlighted his friendship with the former Chechen foreign minister Ilyas uh, Akhmadov, um, Ak- Akhmadov um, and noted the administration, che- uh, the admiration Chechens generally had for America. Williams emphasized that the Boston Marathon bombing was not aligned with Chechen objectives or their historical view of America um i thought that was quite interesting because yeah i mean think think i don't i hadn't really necessarily thought of this like bombing too much until i had to you know from when it happened until we had to do this unlike a few other attacks that you know tend to get mentioned quite a lot and um come up but i think what's interesting is like I I don't know how much uh Chechnya factors into the 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 public narrative that that is given to us about this. Um I, I, I feel like a lot of um a lot of it like ironically, you know, or counter to what William says here, a lot of it did get wrapped up in just being a um another jihadist attack, really. Um so yeah i mean may, maybe you guys re- remember it differently um perhaps well one of the
0: really bizarre things about it too which is never discussed um <clears throat> is the death of um i brag, um, Tadishev, uh in the aftermath he was um a friend of one of the bombers and Uh, This guy, Tadashev and one of the bombers had earlier been suspected in um, a triple murder in Waltham, Massachusetts, I believe, which happened actually on September 11th, 2011. Uh, The whole thing is really bizarre. Tadashev was thought to have maybe played a uh, crucial role in that, or at least they've tried to frame it as such.
2: So anyway, he... Oh, I was going to say, I mean, about Tordeshev, it's just because I got got the details. I was going to mention that, so I got the details about it there. Um, uh, And I think it's worth mentioning. So he was shot seven times, including once in the back of the head, um, under mysterious circumstances, while being questioned by the FBI at his home. It appears roughly half a dozen officers were present in the room, with uh Tadashev having a knee injury uh why he wasn't questioned at a police station is unclear um also the story changed with FBI officers first claiming uh Tadashev um attacked them with a weapon but later denying it yeah. uh yeah
0: did it come Friends out he was like handcuffed or something like that which is why they had to retract that like
2: possibly. Um, they also um, deported his girlfriend afterwards. Um, so she she had her visa revoked. Um, I mean she claims it's because she gave an interview to a um, to a magazine.
0: Yeah, they also uh, deported one of his friends, too, who had been under um, investigation, uh, on unrela- I guess, on an unrelated case or something like that. Or, excuse me, his ha- friend and his housemaid. So, yeah, this guy was implicated in a murder uh, in 2011 with the Boston Marathon bomber. He was later supposedly questioned in relation to the Boston Marathon bombing. He had also relocated to Chesney at one point, and I believe was suspected of aiding uh, the militant groups over there. And then he's in Orlando. He is killed inexplicably by the police. The narrative changed. Um, And from what I recall, Ed might remember this differently, but... I mean, it seemed like the Boston Marathon thing was poised to become a really big deal. And then suddenly, um, you know, like, I think a week or two after the fact, you had this just weird incident with Shah, And that was after he was killed, really, one of the last times you really heard about it. And I mean, another thing, too, is Russia Today was really um, pumping up his dad in the aftermath of the shooting, who was talking about what a good son he was and how the FBI description had really contradicted what he was like. And there were even rumblings that he was going to launch a, a big lawsuit and what have you against the FBI. And again, we haven't heard anything about that, um, I think, after like 2014, 2015. So, another reason why that just kind of fell off the face of the earth. <clears throat> Ed, do, do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Uh, honestly, it, it is really strange how memory hold the, the Boston Marathon bombing is. And, you know, I'm trying to think of like the last time I really heard it discussed. And I feel like the kind of bizarro Reddit spectacle around it, if you're if you remember that, is talked about more than the actual events themselves. And, you know, who actually conducted the bombings. Yeah, it's interesting.
0: Yeah, it's very weird. And then, of course, Dave, Dave McGowan did some really great coverage of this too. And he, I mean, Gowan had actually argued that effectively it was a bungled operation with different factions, I believe, of the U.S. security services involved in it against each other, which I think has a lot of legitimacy when you look at later events like January 6th and what have you, which also bears some similarities to all of this too especially as a again kind of a quasi color revolution
2: um i think uh as as well i mean to to just uh, there's more like speculation but just on the kind of stuff that we know like goes on and that kind of thing i mean if we think about the lock the lockdown and the manhunt in combination with kind of uh, the what went on on Reddit. So, on I mean, just go back to that. For people who don't know, like on Reddit, there was a kind of a big mega thread and apparently people thought they'd identified uh, the, the guy, but it, it turned out not to be him. And uh, it was all a really big mistake. And I, I think there was like a little bit of trouble, but I mean, the timing of 2013, doesn't make it um implausible that uh like it it could be uh, that kind of reddit debacle itself could be related to some kind of uh digital uh, psychological operation of those kinds of things go on especially when i think about the combination of the kind of manhunt um the the lockdown that you know set quite a lot of precedents um it's possible that uh, maybe yeah some some group or some faction they it, it feels like uh that that would be a good um time to test uh our how you know um can we lock down a city and find like one specific person uh plan if there if there ever was such such a thing
1: well i mean it
0: also was kind of the hmm, i mean it wasn't the beginning but it was one of the earlier instances of kind of like the online sleuthing era you know where the public is really harnessed to try to solve crimes as you were you know mentioning that I was kind of uh recalling the recent events with Gabby Patino or whatever her name was the, the whole thing with like Utah and then it ended up with that huge manhunt you know for her um boyfriend and a couple of those state parks in Florida and I think it was Wyoming or something like that so yeah, definitely. You can kind of see like a very unsettling precedent coming out of all of this. Um, Ed, did you have anything else to add, sir?
1: Yeah, just you know, on, on that point, it's I hadn't really thought of the possibility that, that that Reddit spectacle could have been a psychological operation. But in a lot of ways that that would make sense because um I remember quite like vividly when that was happening and on that. Mega thread. People had worked themselves up into basically a, a literal frenzy, you know, and they were targeting, accusing them of being the bombers, and directing, you know, law enforcement at these innocent people. You know, I think at least one person kind of had his life totally destroyed by it, and it was just—it's like a fe- d- digital feeding frenzy. It was really bizarre in retrospect.
2: I think about as well, just, I mean, uh, in terms of technology and what would have been technologically capable and what those kind of people might have had a view on, um, around that time, I think just based on what, you know, like I've worked in, in a lot of like software development and those kinds of things, Probably around 2013 would have been an interesting time to try like these things like uh, social listening, uh, social listening to like real time feeds. Can we get like, um, you know, real sort of the uh, kind of modern day Internet version of the original kind of Phoenix computer programs uh, where you had like the the map? Um, I, I I wouldn't be surprised if uh, or at least if I was working that job, I'd say, oh, this is a great time to, um, yeah, kind of see how some of this technology works. Like, can we mass listen to the conversation, to um, online conversations? Can we um, influence online conversations? Um, Just thinking about where social media was at that time, what was technologically possible um yeah that there, that there, maybe someone can look into it <laughs> well it's
0: also interesting too that this um the manhunt for the boston marathon suspects would have unfolded a little after uh the death of Alyssa lamb um for those of you unfamiliar she was uh the young woman who uh was found dead in that um what is it called the um, um it's the thing that holds water on top of this hotel Hotel Cecil in uh, Los Angeles and it's like a
1: weird water reservoir thing
0: yeah it became kind yeah. of a sensation because it had a lot of weird overlaps with the horror film dark water of course there was the American and the Japanese version of that and it necessitated a lot of online sleuthing because people thought that she was murdered i guess like they eventually ruled that it was an accidental death or something like that but at one point they had tried to i think like implicate the guitarist of morbid angel who was living at the the hotel was like engaging in some kind of like ritual murder of her so this the Alyssa, was
1: she the one working like Acting strange in the elevator that was caught on the yeah, security camera. Yeah, uh,
0: yeah. She was acting weird in the elevator. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, it
1: is an unsettling video.
0: Yeah, no, don't get me wrong, it is a really weird incident, and it's it's not to suggest that there might not have been something to that. That's like what I'm kind of getting at is like they had this whole strange thing with Alyssa Lamb happen. Um in 2013 and early 2013 like unfolding online and i mean you know this was a pretty big pop culture thing for a while and i mean eventually inspired like the fifth season of um american horror story for instance um so it was big uh, for a little bit in 2013 and for a few years afterwards and then of course you have the whole thing with the boston marathon stuff happening later and like you're saying again it's another because i think reddit was also a big part of the Alyssa lamb thing and again just you know people being accused of being involved in the death all kinds of speculation about who was behind it what the agenda was um it's it's really interesting to see both of those unfolding in the same year um so yeah it does kind of make you wonder Maybe something here was kind of like a trial run or something.
2: Going back to uh, who we kind of mentioned earlier, which is the professor, Brian Glynn Williams, so Professor of Islamic History at University of Massachusetts. Zokar reached out to him about Chechen history. Uh, What's also interesting is Williams had a personal experience with the bombing. So Williams was about a mile away when the actual bombing occurred. Uh, He had friends at the finish line and new individuals who were um, who were hurt. He talks a lot about Chechnya um, expressing the desire to educate people about Chechnya uh, emphasizing the distinction as we mentioned before between Chechen nationalism and Al-Qaeda. He also highlights the plight of chechens um uh inflicted on them by russians describing it as almost genocidal brian williams obviously based on all of this um is not just an academic but it's uh suspected that he is well a cia agent um he has served as the CIA's primary expert on suicide bombings and has extensively traveled Central Asia on its behalf, raising eyebrows due to the coincidence of his expertise and the Boston bombing. Uh, Williams is recognized by the Jamestown Foundation as one of their analysts. Between May 2005 and May 2013, um, approximately thirty articles were authored by Williams. Um, uh, were authored by Williams and published by um, Jamestown. Um, I'm not going to list all the all the names of these articles, but uh, they they all revolve around terrorism, Al Qaeda, uh, Central Asia, Afghanistan. So um, it's all uh, direct to the point stuff. Brzezinski had this connection had these connections with all of these kind of chechen mafia and chechen um separatist uh, or independence figures so uh Nukayev, who've mentioned uh Dudayev uh and Mashkodov, uh, were all described as quote nationalist freedom fighters despite their criminal uh and in some cases terror activities um Chechen the term chechen nationalists as used by williams uh refers to figures like shamil basayev who we've mentioned before was involved in many extreme terror attacks in russia uh all the ones you know of committed by terrorisms like probably that you can recall off the top of your head were um, by him so i think bezlan um a kind of nuclear dirty bomb plot um, where I think actual devices were planted um, around Moscow um, so heavy stuff um, and also the Saudi Jordanian um, Ibn al-Khattab who we also mentioned earlier were, um, not earlier in another podcast was a kind of contemporary of uh, bin Laden appear a so to speak so kind of of the same rank running his own operation. He was heavily involved in the Chechen wars. Um and also a man by the name of Sheikh Fathi Shishani, a Saudi who reportedly was funded by the Congress of Chechen international organizations. Um and that the funding for that was Allegedly provided by Ruslan Sani and Graham Fuller. Now, in some of these Jamestown um, articles, uh, Russian pre- Russian press Russian press alleged that the Jamestown Foundation. Um, was involved in, or figures connected to them, were involved in running pro-Shetch and jihadist networks in the caucus through a Georgian-based fund, uh, fund of the caucus. Uh, Tamerlane, who stayed in Dagestan from January to July 2012, was supposedly recruited into this network. Um. However, there's this is what is alleged by the Russians, but there there is limited evidence to support this. Uh, while both Jamestown and fund of the Caucus organized annual conferences promoting the independence of the Caucasian Republics from Russia, there's no proof that any of the terrorists attended these events, uh, the FBI also stated that Tamerlane never crossed the border from Dagestan into Russia, Uh, into Georgia Um, it's suspected that the US is managing as we've stated before these networks of radicals Um, Anton Surikov highlighted the West strategy to encourage separatism in the Northern Caucus um, to cut off Russia from the Trans Caucus now um we we've kind of mentioned here um so uh williams connections or um support heavy public support for many chechen radicals uh we should also point here that fiona hill mentioned earlier also um published publicly at the time many uh many kind of defenses of um in particular, uh, Shamil Basayev. Um, now, Anton Surikov, uh, our kind of member of Far West, um, reportedly managed the, uh, including Sidov, reportedly managed the Chechen jihadist network, uh, particularly that of Shamil Basayev, who really, again, was like one of the key um, figure, military figures in, in this. Um, now if anyone could assist brzezinski fuller and all of these people in managing these jihadist networks it could be far west um this kind of ties a lot of the you know people that we've spoken about here together um there's also um a lot of this information as well came from the um uh, Institute for the study of globalization covert politics so um they they did a really nice concise article about this that most of this information came from uh they have some interesting facts as well uh that just um you know really uh paint the picture of this kind of um milieu so um we mentioned earlier Graham Fuller um, who was connected to Ruslan Sani, who was the uncle of the Boston bombers? Now, his daughter Samantha um, and Ruslan, from 1995 to 1999, I think, when they were in Kyrgyzstan and in and around Central Asia, were running USA, uh, USAID, and World Bank uh world bank and various corporate programs in central asia i think uh his wife samantha was working basically on privatization programs with pwc um so that's quite quite heavy high level um,
0: connections finally senate how many of the far west figures do we know of who are
2: still alive around 2014 Okay, so uh, as we mentioned earlier, Surikov um, met his end in 2010. Uh, if I recall he was basically murdered. I think he just died on a I think he was found on a beach or something uh either shot or drowned. That's not very good recall. Uh, Sidov um was assassinated in Chechnya um around about 2009 um i believe and those are the two that i think we know are dead um the as for some of the others budkevichis who was the man in lithuania i think is still active and he's an active politician today you can occasionally see him on the news uh he's heavily involved in um defense and foreign policy of Lithuania and NATO in general. And um it it appears that Vladimir Filin is still alive. Uh I'm not sure if to this day actually.
0: Well, you know, to pull back here for a second too, and I'm glad that you um, you know, also brought up uh, the whole thing with Syria. Um as far as I can tell uh, there was not really a you know any kind of a far west presence in that but just you know to sort of put this in broader perspective um it kind of was an outgrowth of the Arab Spring which started around 2007 2008 especially and again you know this was sort of like another stage uh in the whole evolution of color revolutions it uh you know in this case really uh, employed social media to an extent uh that was not possible obviously in prior years when things like the orange revolution were kicking off uh, but syria had not been especially in affected by it not to the extent that places like libya and egypt had been uh but things had been you know sort of simmering a little bit here and there to about 2013 but 2014 is when things really got serious with the rise of isis and uh the invasion there and again another thing that's interesting to note about that as well is this is coming around the time uh, that the u.s had begun to withdraw forces pretty extensively in iraq i mean of course the process had already started under bush too but it i think was like kind of nearing completion around this time frame and many of um isis's original hierarchy had um spend time in that uh that particular prison in iraq i cannot uh, recall the name of it now off the top of my head but um i think it's camp camp yes yes the one where that was kind of notorious for a lot of the enhanced interrogation stuff and you know that kind of thing so it's interesting you know at the time the u.s military presence is drawing down you have a lot of these people if they you know weren't radicalized before they were brought into this prison you know subjected to these peculiar methods of uh interrogation quote unquote uh ensuring that they probably went upon being released were radicalized uh and then they end up gravitating into syria at this um particularly crucial time in history and uh, really destabilized the regime there um, you can certainly draw maybe a little bit of parallels to what happened with Afghanistan in recent years. Um, obviously, we didn't see the forces redeployed, but I suspect that a hope might have been that um, some of the uh, jihadists from Afghanistan uh, could have been used to destabilize um. Uh, Russia's southern borders and maybe will still be used for that purpose in the future. I mean, again, much like Iraq, um, a lot of suspect groups and they ended up with a lot of state-of-the-art military equipment and all this good stuff in the aftermath of um the United States withdrawing. And of course, in the case of Afghanistan, it was much more hasty. Um, but to get back to this this time frame around 2013, 2014, and sort of put us in a broader uh, geopolitical perspective here as we uh wrap up um there had been these allegations that far west had been behind uh, going back to 08 09 about potentially assassinating barack obama and clearing the way for joe biden uh to assume the presidency by 2012 if not sooner again you know we can obviously debate how serious a lot of this is but it is interesting to put this all in context you have the 2008 election against the backdrop of the russo georgian war that far west appears to have played a significant role in in the hopes of getting mccain in office uh they do not succeed but obama assumes office with joe biden as his vp who far west had established overtures too they start making rumblings about uh possible assassination attempts against mr obama at a time when he is trying to normalize relations with russia It's also during this time that a lot of these far west figures start turning up dead uh in pretty large number for previously uh being pretty secure and then suddenly Around 03, 04, there's just a massive amount of destabilization unfolding across the world. Of course, first you have the whole situation in Ukraine with the Irma and then from there, you get the situation in Syria, which in some ways was something of a blessing because it did arguably um, hold off the war in Europe for several years as the great power struggle was effectively played out between the US and uh, Russia in Syria throughout Obama's uh, second term and uh, to a certain extent through Trump's presidency as well and of course at the same time you have a lot of these terror attacks that we've just been talking about Um, Bravic's shooting spree in the Nordic countries you have the Boston Marathon bombings here so, there's as I said before something of a hint of a global strategy of tension, which I think was specifically directed at the Obama White House to uh deny him any real possibility of achieving trade detente with russia i mean of course, there had obviously been deteriorating relations up to this point in time, but And certainly Mr. Obama was finding himself, at least initially, in a precarious situation. He had a very hawkish foreign policy establishment around him. He had Joe Biden as his beep, who was very game uh, to ratchet up the conflict with Russia. And again, there's just so much interesting things playing out with all of this. Um, Obama seems to have tried to re-emphasize Afghanistan with the surge when he took office. Of course, he famously put Stanley McChrystal in charge of this, and then McChrystal was in glamour, so he removed as the head of this, uh, bringing his started military career to an end after uh, he had made some rather disparaging remarks against Vice President Joe Biden, which is another kind of factor playing out in all of this. But nonetheless, Obama does seem to have actually pursued détente with Russia in his first term, and gradually pressure was mounted against him to eventually force a about-face, to put it mildly, in the second term and resulting in the sort of covert war with russia or cold war 2.0 i mean you again some people have argued that a cold war 2.0 started with the russia georgian war i mean it's some possibility of that but i think really things got going with syria so this goes on for a few more years and then trump comes into office again it seems like there is an attempt that detente with russia and again pressure is brought to bear against the trump administration when well, the case of the trump administration not just to reverse course but effectively to remove trump um i suspect because maybe unlike obama they realized that there was no real possibility of trump Ratcheting things up to the extent that uh, there might have been a hope for, again going back to my early discussion uh, concerning Paul Manafort and um, the uh, the presidency that you ended up with was Zelensky in 2019. I can't help but feel that with Zelensky, there was an attempt there to try to navigate a middle ground by the trump presidency of course when he assumed office this was a little after um uh, had uh, been the president of course he was much more the pro-russian camp uh this was not a appealing state of affairs to the anti-russian hawks trump was not going to support some unity like yashanko but i do feel like Zelensky was maybe seen as um a bit of a middle ground of course uh, he came to power with support from people who were more uh closely aligned with uh tumashenko julia yulia tumashenko who was um always kind of seen as a bit of a middle ground between the Banderites and the uh, pro-russian forces as i said earlier so attempted compromise there that to achieve maybe some degree of peace and normalized relations with russia or at least to avoid a european war and it's again that did not really work out after uh biden won the election in 2020. this is uh then followed by the glamorous u.s withdrawal in afghanistan um Some of the intrigues, I think, with Kazakhstan and uh, potentially a color revolution there. Of course, this is one of the countries that's in the security pact with Russia and Belarus. And then ultimately the conflict in Ukraine that we currently come to. So it just seems like with both the Obama and the Trump presidencies, to some extent, there was a real attempt at detente. In the case of Obama, I mean, almost a kind of strategy of tension was used to force his hand to take a more militant stance against Putin. And in the case of Trump, it just seems like they haven't really tried to remove and use the threat of removal to try and push for more militancy. So this is just fascinating to see how this just really fanatically anti-Russian element of the U.S. foreign policy establishment, this faction that we've been chronicling that really it does appear to have had very close ties to far west it was so instrumental in poisoning the well with russia during the prior decade and i think in a lot of ways really ensuring uh, the current state of affairs that we currently find ourselves in so um whether they are alive or dead or now it uh, certainly seems like far west legacy has been secured at least in ukraine um do you have any thoughts on that Senator?
2: yeah Yeah, i mean uh just like two things that come to mind um with the anti-obama campaign um we know kind of far west had their own uh version of this but um i think it's interesting that some of the other people we mentioned today uh like pamela geller um more loosely douglas murray but i mean pamela geller in particular was kind of like a major figure in the Bertha movement, um, and I've got no doubt that in some of these more extraneous uh, anti-Obama campaigns, you're going to start finding people connected uh, in in the web um, <laughs> of, of of these guys. Um, also, also um, just about the, the kind of shift. I, uh, I
0: mean. On Geller, yeah. I think she was actually really early in the birther campaign, if I remember correctly, and just in general really pushing the narrative in 08 that Obama was a covert Muslim, effectively um, being steered in place by, I don't know, like the Muslim Brotherhood or something like that to take over the U.S.
2: <laughs> yeah, and I mean, if if you think, uh, th- and this will get into kind of like the next point, but if you think about kind of just, what was going on like that that what lines they're pushing um it's interesting yeah that there there is this kind of alignment between what is the kind of public narrative and being pushed in the news and yeah what what is going on behind the scenes and what we're what we're kind of discussing here and who's saying what at what reason for why and why um It was important to tie Obama to Islam, at the you know, and being a Muslim at the kind of time of of this uh, you know destabilization through the 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 far right, and how that kind of connects them into a kind of new world and uh, nexus of um, things going on like, individuals who are kind of uh, absorbing all of this, you know, through through the news and propaganda and that kind of thing. Um, also, I think uh, the, the kind of point I wanted to make that, I mean, was I hadn't really actually thought about it too much until we actually, we, like, began recording this, but it's interesting how you do see that shift in 2014, um, almost as if that's when, you know, the, the the war kind of became hot in Syria and Ukraine. A kind of, now that I look back on it, and maybe other people, other listeners' perception will be different, that is kind of where you saw, interestingly enough, despite it being the time that ISIS pops up, a bit less of that, of a particular kind of flavour of um, far-right, Um, christian or white nationalism in europe uh, are you know i would note today that kind of a lot of the um you know figures we've mentioned in the kind of european neo-nazi movements or anti-islam movements uh, um now it they're not getting any help right they're not getting the media appearances uh money and that kind of thing they're on their own getting probably the sort of uh organic um support that they were entitled you know are entitled to which is probably very very little but during all of that time clearly there was like a lot of money going to yeah these figures who I guess here we kind of look at as agents of destabilization and you know, it does make me wonder if, um, yeah, R- Russia's, you know, f- physical intervention in Syria and Ukraine uh, really changed the dynamic of everything that was going on. And a lot of what were old plans became new plans because 2014, you know, naturally is when we can see the increase um, of the, the real propaganda campaign against uh Russia. Um, really accelerate, and uh, a lot of crazy activity in British intelligence, um, and British security, kind of looking forward, uh, at at, at what was to come.
0: Yeah, it's really amazing, and uh, you know, I often wonder too what exactly, because in the case of Mr. Obama and like Mr. Trump, I mean, it does seem like Obama had genuine animosity towards Putin whereas uh with Trump I mean certainly I don't think that Trump and Putin are buddy buddy the way that um the legacy media has tried to depict it but I wouldn't say that there was uh I mean a lot of tension between the two men either whereas Mr Obama does seem to genuinely dislike Mr Putin so I mean, I can't help but wonder if there was maybe some kind of arrangement or something that was violated um by the military interventions that Putin had engaged in. Conversely, maybe he Putin felt like he had no choice. I mean, who really knows? But yeah, it does seem like there was a dramatic about face uh during that time frame Uh one last thing too, uh, about Pamela Geller to kind of link all this up is it and just remembered here um going through her biography she was actually also a major denier of the uh, the serbian genocide um and had actually defended the one major uh serbian war criminal uh, Molovic or something like that i can't remember his name now off the top of my head so i thought that was uh,
2: milos milosevic
0: yes 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 So i thought that was interesting in general kind of uh and seeing what a big role that Serbia' has played in a lot of this. Of course, we talked about Serbia too as an early launching ground her color revolutions and um, the prior show as well. And also, there was that bizarre incident where Geller alleged that there were plans to uh, kidnap her and behead her in 2015 as part of a an assassination attempt that like the Muslim Brotherhood or some other Islamic group was trying to carry out and uh, incidentally supposedly she was set to be abducted in the city of Boston <laughs> so I, th-
2: I think it's it's interesting as well that the Muslim Brotherhood um serves as like a kind of uh figure in operation of this because I mean, I I don't know how much you've read into them. I mean, I've tried to do a bit, but probably not enough. But it's quite interesting that on the one hand, they're described as, yeah, uh, you know, have a very standard history as a, you know, kind of real uh, revolutionary organization or something like that. But then on the other hand, you see a lot of critiques of them. Not necessarily of the Muslim Brotherhood, but the uh, portrayal of them as kind of, you know, being a shadowy organization, almost one like a mythical one that kind of um, doesn't, you know, exist. But one interesting thing I've seen written out there, I think it might have been in the left or you stuff, was that um, Jamal Khashoggi was a kind of agent of the Muslim Brotherhood. And one of the kind of theories or, you know, kind of, and I don't know, I haven't really investigated this that this much, but, um, I mean, it's interesting that it comes up a, a lot, is that, though actually we've probably disproved it by, you know, investigating Far West here, was that the reason Jamal Khashoggi was killed was he essentially delivered a coup threat from the CIA to MBS, you know, on behalf of the CIA, and that the Muslim Brotherhood is basically used as a proxy of the United States and Britain within Saudi Arabia to keep the Saudi royal family in check. Um, Now, (laughs) how much truth there is to that, or whether that's like a... Hairbrain theory um yeah I, I don't know i i actually probably lean more to this uh like connection with far west um I, but but it is it's interesting that like yeah it it the muslim brotherhood features in a lot of people's uh derangements
0: yeah it is a fascinating connection and um i mean i have to look up this again but i i think that Khashoggi maybe did have some links to the Muslim Brotherhood, and as we'll see in the next one here, um, there definitely is a real possibility he was trying to stir up a coup um, in Saudi Arabia. Uh, But yeah, it is uh, a fascinating uh, perspective to put on uh, some of the stuff in Saudi Arabia, what we'll get into in the next episode, because there is definitely a sort of factions within the Saudi Royal family and um some have always been closer to uh, the United States than others so it may not be quite as far off the mark but again there's still been a uh a lot of disinformation put out there about the Muslim Brotherhood to put it mildly um and on the note too of the uh, alleged Geller beheading threat, it was actually connected to ISIS and not uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, which again is interesting in this whole time thing, 2014, 2015, which again, you know, I think was used uh, for a further military intervention to support further military intervention in
2: Syria. So, but it it was um it uh, around that time was when I think it was figuring. At least the Muslim Brotherhood was figuring as a major part of kind of Republican uh, discourse because there was the um, accusations against uh, uh, Huma Aberdeen, who was um, one of Clinton's uh, staffers uh, in the whole kind of like Benghazi affair that she was, um, you know, in the Muslim Brotherhood and the daughter of um, someone in the Muslim Brotherhood. I, I don't think these were true or verified in any way, but um that was around that the same time period um that yeah, that 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 this was going on
0: yeah, in hindsight, it's definitely interesting to see it as kind of a transitional phase in our foreign policy because I mean, I think we can now. A look back on Syria, which originally uh you know was attempted to be sold to the American public on the basis of a continuation of our quote unquote anti-terrorist or you know, let's be honest, anti-Islamic activities in the Middle East, when in reality uh it was a part of these broader um Operations against the Russian Federation, and then gradually, as the years have gone on, it's uh, increasingly the propaganda around it has shifted to that. How you know it's crucial that we stay in Syria because we need to confront the Russians there. I mean, you almost never even really hear anything about the Islamic element to it at all. I mean, obviously, I don't even think that they're trying to even argue that there's a Islamic extremists active there anymore. So,
2: <laughs> I think as well, um, you you know. When we're talking about Brevik, I I kind of mentioned there's like an Israeli dynamic to um, his crime. So, you know, the the EDL, Pamela Geller, um, all of the the kind of neo-Nazis for that time were very heavily pro-Zionist. I mean, Tommy Robinson, I think, was being paid by... Uh, someone might be the name might be Robert Shapiro, though I might be remembering that wrong. Who was a kind of um, I think he was a a really rich guy who was head of Friends of the IDF, and I think it was alleged that there was a period of time where he was paying Tommy Robinson ten thousand pounds per month, right to um, to to kind of get going. I mean, just to put that in perspective, that's probably five times the average. You know, wage for someone um, here um, to to basically do what he was doing—be out in the media, running the EDL, and that kind of thing. Um, we know we know that there is like some, well, a fair bit of Israeli involvement in Syria. Um, there, there are obviously the um, most out there allegations that you know ISIS was um, a product of them but um yeah to go back to the brevik attack that that kind of happened at a time where norway was yeah discussing um you know making some critical decisions around israel policy we know that the people that were there um the the teenagers who were at the camp were practicing um a kind of flotilla for for you know gaza and um i think the israeli aspect in a lot of far west stuff is kind of unexplored i it, it seems like they were separate partners obviously naturally due to their position having their kind of own agenda and own plans but um every so often you see them wrapped uh in on this and then if we remember like the whole neoconservative movement itself is um you know as much a a much of, as much of a product of uh, kind of Israeli thought and ideology um, as it is uh, American or uh, Brit- you know British, so um, th- there's probably quite a lot to explore there in exactly what they were doing throughout all of this. Because I find I find that we're touching on so many things that they may have been involved with but um, their role is always the most mysterious I think
0: yeah well I mean I think the Israelis were I mean there would have been I think a lot of areas where their interests would have overlapped with the far west milieu but there would have been others where uh, they were really at odds with each other I mean in the case of Syria this is like an obvious situation where they would have had shared interests because from the K from the perspective of the Zionist lobby I mean the major um force active in Syria is actually Iran which I mean it really is the main proxy there uh with Russia playing more of a support role and Iran in turn is viewed as the major threat to Israel in that region of the world so they would definitely be supportive of action there and so would a lot of the neoliberal um factions in the United States maybe not necessarily because of the Iranian thing Again, this is kind of coming at a time when Mr. Obama was trying to normalize relations with Iran, but uh, it would have been useful in terms of ratcheting up tension with Russia, which also had a major strategic partnership with Syria. In fact, that was really its major remaining beachhead in that region of the world. So in that case, you know, they have a lot of shared interests. But when you get into something like Ukraine, I mean, I think the lines are a little more blurred i mean obviously the quote-unquote russian mafia always had very strong ties to both ukraine and israel but conversely uh, you know i think i got into this in the maybe the first or second uh, installment in this series but i mean there was a huge migration of russian jews to israel during the 90s and especially a lot of them ended up in the security services i mean i think at one point uh, in the nod something like it was estimated close to 20% of the idf might have been russian jews um who in a lot of cases had not really assimilated very much to israel either um they still were you know more culturally russian so that i think has always created a precarious situation for israel in relation to russia Um, And then on top of that, I mean, they've generally had better relations with the country over the years than a lot of people realize. But I mean, certainly with the large percentage of Israelis who have ties, family ties to Russia, and especially with many of them within the security services, I think that that would be a big concern to the israeli government on a lot of levels because i mean if you provoke russia enough i mean they could probably pro- do some real damage internally to the idf to the mossad i mean who knows so i mean that could be confronting russia directly could constitute a very real existential threat to the continual existence of israel not just you know i mean from like a military standpoint but from a just a perspective of sabotage and internal destabilization that could be carried out so i think that's one of the reasons why you know i mean that's kind of a factor playing out in the backdrop of um the links between the far west and some of these zionist
2: quarters
3: mm-hmm.
2: i i think as well to uh to add to that i mean okay there's a uh, Yeah, a lot of um, Russian tendrils into Israel. But um, uh, I think when reading through this, one dynamic I I hadn't really considered before is the kind of reverse. So the fact that, you know, in the same way we have in the West, like a, um, you know, a kind of... um, israel will be ukraine
0: you know that's something we kind of focused on but it's a good example because i mean we tend to think of the u.s security services as running the ukrainians but there's a lot of you know uh indications that i mean the ukrainian intelligence services and their proxies have also greatly influenced uh, u.s foreign policy to an extent that would probably be shocking to a lot of americans
2: yeah in in, in a lot of the um left.ru stuff they um do point out um various figures in russia as being part of the zionist clique um alpha bank was described in a lot of their documentation as being um zionist controlled um and that kind of thing um so uh, yeah that that's just another interesting dynamic because yeah you think about the israel lobby's influence in the west but you also don't really think you know they they could have just as much impact um uh, well not not more but just as much impact uh in russia as well
0: yeah i mean i think it's definitely quite a balancing act for Israel, because I mean, in a lot of ways, I think its kind of perpetual existence does um, depend upon it being able to sort of thread the needle between Russia and uh, U.S. relations, which has only become more and more difficult, certainly in um, recent years. So, yeah, it's it's definitely a very complex topic, to put it mildly. Well, sir, do you uh, do you have anything else to add here? Nope. All right. Well, then I think we will sign off for here, and uh, we will pick up here with the next and final installment, with a focus on Saudi Arabia and fittingly the what was probably the last far west affiliated coup that the outfit uh, attempted to pull off next time around. And with that, I want to thank you guys as always for listening and your support. And with that, good night and good luck to you.
3: Uh-oh. Come on, baby, pick me up. Out here in my wiki, up. Sick and tired of fucking up. Sick and tired of pushing luck Boo boo got juice in it. Swallow what I'm about to spit. Don't got 86 from the copper queen for singing this. I took it to the goat. J. Boo Ray, my people there, they feeling me. Down low skin, roll, more characters and Stephen King. Just working at the quarry, y'all I ain't in a hurry, y'all Come on, baby, pick me up Out here in my wiki, up Stuck down in this stick Hut is hot as hell, I tell you what Put it up and knock it down Moving on that big around Come on, mama, jump down Turn around, do it for me Stick it out, say one, two, three Geronimo, jump, baby, we gotta go Hands tied, blindfold Jump until that back Get the fuck out Cause they done let the wolves out They're coming with that heat Mama shooting up the street Mama fight or flight adrenaline You feel that little tingle in your feet Mama no retreat Mobilize your whole fleet Hit the street Tell me that you good for it You want peace Go to war for it Say one, two, three Geronimo Jump baby We gotta go Screaming with me, scream Geronimo, hands tied blindfold, jump into that battle zone. Come on baby, pick me up, out here in my wiki-up. Got y'all on some Aztec bullshit, never getting used to it, got bills of weed and catapults with Santa we're in it. Shoot it over the castle while the megro can't patrol it off from Berlin to the Great, while the greatest walls are bound to fall. So legalize it, Vato, About the Genghis Chapo Come on, legalize it, no need to advertise it Don't be the of cancer, everybody even caught a realized If a farmer don't make cash money when we rock that stash, honey Best believe they sooner take it out your ass, Sunday. Come on, the man ain't getting wealthy with people getting healthy, right? Talking about high AZ, talking about that BMC. We got no economy if we ain't got no enemy. The Popo and the BP, DHS and Army, Honeywell and L3. Razor wires, UAPs officer, excuse me, please. Said I'm just eating my burrito, not the Georgia you're looking for. See you all on payday See you at the Safeway Bisbee lives on crazy checks BP on that fast pay I sing my hooded blues, y'all I don't make the rules, y'all Just paying my dues, y'all But I'm just saying Sorry, hippies If great white father don't make payroll Forget about your maypole Civilization, what?